passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Came up, Red Sox traded to Baltimore. You played a few years there, you were out of the pen. You went to Houston. I didn't even know that about Kurt Schilling. I thought I knew everything about it. Devastating. Yeah, next thing I know... You show up in Philly, and you were the horse for a lot of years. I grew up in Philly. I grew up. I know what that city's like. I oh, love yeah. it to this day. You got to be a Philly fan. You got to be a Flyer fan. You got to be an Eagle fan. You got to yep. be a Sixer fan. And you got to say water, and you got to like cheesesteaks, and you got to like hoagies. But no, on a serious moment. Yep. I grew up there. I watched Mike Schmidt get booed out of the stadium, and I watched him when they won the 1980 World Series, and I got to go on that float another this is what everybody gets to do moment for me. <laughs> you know, I'm on the float with a million people in Philly in the 1980 World Series going, yeah, that's what every kid gets to do. Right. But I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. I saw that side of it, too. And what an unbelievable sports atmosphere it is. You got a lot of it, man. And I'm going to go through it a little bit with the Red Sox and, and that Yankee rivalry. But Philly, too. How would you yeah. like Philly? Uh, just take me through your home. Philly days home, man. I mean, uh, I, first of all, I was, when I got traded from Baltimore to Houston, I was devastated, um, because I thought I, I was very naive. Well, I, I, real quick, here's how this happened. No, this is no lie. So I had just met my wife a couple months before and it's January of two of 1990. And I'm in the, it's 11 AM in the morning and I'm sitting at the table and I'm eating breakfast and I get a phone call. And it's Roland Heeman, the GM of the Orioles. Now, remember, I've spent a total of three months in the big leagues. Eddie Murray, Cal Ripken, this is Mike Devereaux, Steve Finley, Brady Anderson, Craig Worthington, Randy Milligan. We had a very young Bob Malacky, Pete Harnish. 
Um, a really young, talented team. So Roland Heeman calls me, and I'm, my first thought is, wow, what the GM's calling me. And he's like, hey, yeah, uh, hey, Kit, this is uh, Roland Heeman. Uh, I just wanted you to know that we made a trade with the Astros today. And my first thought was, wow, how cool is it that the GM is calling me to tell me that they made a trade? Like, I must be really, like, important in this organization now. And he's like, yeah, we, uh, we, we felt we needed to get some power into the lineup, so we had to make this trade. And, you know, and I was like and, – and I go, okay, Roland, thanks for calling. Like, he was just calling to let me know before I saw it in ESPN. And he's like, oh, uh, no, no, Kat, uh, needed you to know that uh, we actually traded you – uh, in, in the trip, and I was like, "Wait, what? What?" I like, I, I and then it all hits me, and I'm, I was devastated because I thought that I was going to be part of that '90 Orioles team and and grow with that organization. Um, spent a year in Houston um, for all that that's worth. Uh, got to play with some. I got to play with Bagwell's rookie year. Uh, Biggio got to be friends and be teammates with Daryl Kyle, um, uh, Pete Horn. Anyway, uh, then I went to Philadelphia and. Um, I show, I get traded the last day of spring training in 19. And this was like the weirdest bus ride of my life. I get traded. I'm in Houston. I get traded the final day of spring training in 92. And we're in St. Petersburg playing the Cardinals. And I was supposed to pitch the ninth inning. And my pitching coach comes in and goes, hey, you're not throwing today. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm not, I took the bus ride. Of course I'm throwing. He's like, no, you're not throwing. And I can't tell you why. And I'm like, what do you mean you can't tell me why? He goes, well, don't tell anybody, but I think we might have traded you. I'm like, what, what? What? What do you mean? Don't you think you might have you traded me or you didn't trade? Where'd you trade? Where'd you think you might not have traded me to? And uh, he's like, I think we might have traded you to Philly. So I went and grabbed the sporting news and I opened up the the to the Philly roster and I'm like looking at who's on the team. And I had to ride back with the team to the clubhouse. And it was weird because I'm riding the Houston Astro team bus and I'm no longer on the team. And I'm sitting behind behind Ken Caminiti and I'm like, this is just weird, dude. Like like I'm going to be facing you in a month like this. And we were <laughs> laughing about it, but I got to Philly. Um, Johnny Padres turned my career around in one bullpen. Uh, went out to the bullpen for about four weeks, made my first start on May 10th. And, and, and I'm very proud there are statistics. I'm very proud of. I didn't make my first start till May 10th. I led the league in complete games that year. I threw 10 complete games and 26 starts. And uh, I, started my movement to becoming a top of the rotation guy on a veteran team that turned around and had one of the greatest years in Philadelphia history in 1993 with almost the same core personnel. Um, Philly was home. It's where our kids were born. It's our first, first place we bought a home. Those fans to this day have been phenomenal to me and to my family. Uh, and I cherish, and, and I always say this to people, people don't understand this. Every memory I ever had with any sport ever is associated first and foremost with the fans because without the fan reaction, the moment is empty, right? Remember in COVID when these guys were playing in empty stadiums, I might've had issues with that in the sense that I fed off the crowd home and away. I can make 30,000 people shut up or I could put 50,000 people on their feet. That's power. And that, that gave me, that was, that was uh, adrenaline for me. But I fell in love with them, and they were good to me. And I spent almost ten years there. Unfortunately, we didn't win very much. Um, I was just back there for uh, for the uh, the reunion of the '93 team, and and uh, it was special, and it will always be special. And and uh, um, you know, I spent almost ten years there. Got traded to Arizona, which 
you know, it's, it, it's heresy in Boston because people in Boston will say, you know, which one was more special, 01 or 04? And I was like, well, they're kind of the same. And they're like, no, they can't be the same. They, there's no way. An 80, you broke an 86-year-old curve. But I grew up in Phoenix. And, and Phoenix was my home. I went to high school there. So I went home, in a sense, to Arizona. And to this day, it's still the only world championship any sports team in Arizona has ever brought. And I got to spend two years pitching behind probably the second or third most dominant pitcher in, in the history of baseball in RJ. Uh, and, and proud to say we did some things that I don't think anybody ever did before them or has ever done since. Uh, boy, that was that was fun. Uh, and then you had, you know, I've been privy to some of the greatest – Joe Carter in 1993, 9-11 World Series in 01 and all the things that went with that. The 04 postseason with the Red Sox, 86-year-old curse. I've been blessed to be among some of the greatest postseason moments in history. And, you know, 9-11 and 01 was certainly one of those. Um, I love that that I, you know, when the postseason started, I knew I was starting game one and game five of the St. Louis series. I knew that I was going to jump into the Atlanta series. But I knew when the World Series started, I was going to start one, four, and seven if we went seven. And I mean, I, that's what I live for. I live for October um, and uh, had a phenomenal experience in Arizona. Then I went to Boston and I really honestly, it was a last minute thing. Arizona and Boston were kind of out of the nowhere of things. The Boston thing, I thought I was going to be a Yankee. My wife wanted to go to New York and um, I had heard Boston was 25 guys, 25 cabs and all this other stuff. And then uh, they had a lot of forethought. And, and and then quickly, real quickly, this is no this is how it happened. We were at a I was having a fundraiser at my house for for skin cancer. My wife was a, is a skin cancer survivor, and we had the ownership of Jerry Colangelo and Joe Garziola Jr. Our GM were at the house, and I had a total no trade. I had negotiated my last ten years of my own contracts. I always negotiated my own deals. I had a total no trade, uh, and it was just uh, after '03, and we had hurt. We got hurt at the end of the year, and and all the things that went with that, and. They wanted to move a con. They just signed Gonzo to a long-term extension and they wanted to pair payroll. And I knew I was kind of the guy. So I, I, I gave them a list of teams and nothing really happened. And, and right about then Terry Frakona interviewed for the Boston job. And I knew Tito from Philly and I went to them and I, I told Joe Garrett, I said, Hey, listen, if Boston's interested, you know, I'd be open to listening. He walks, literally walks from me across the, my backyard to Jerry Colangelo comes back five minutes later and says, Hey, just so you know, Boston's actually already made a trade for you on the condition maybe you'd waive your no trade. They'll be here Thursday morning. Uh, they have 72 hours to sign you. I'm like, uh, okay, sure. <laughs> but it was just Theo Epstein was light years ahead of everybody else, him and Jen Hoyer both. So they came and pitched. And um, one of the things I remember very vividly about the Boston thing was that I had the Yankees on my phone in the interim saying, Hey, listen, if you just don't sign there, let the window run out. And if a window, when the window runs out, we'll be there Saturday morning. You can fill in the check. We don't care. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of nice leverage to have. So, so, uh, but it ended up being at the end of the day, the choice between Boston and New York came down to this. I could go be a Yankee and be a part of world championship 27, 28, maybe 29, or I can go to Boston and do something no one alive has ever seen before. And I negotiated a $2 million World Series bonus into the contract. My third year, the fourth year of the deal became guaranteed if we won a World Series before the end of my contract. Because, and, and I, those were the incentive because they couldn't pay me. They, they said, we can't pay you more than Pedro. And I was like, okay, whatever. Um, but you're bringing me there to win a World Series. If I, if I help bring the goods, I want to get paid for it. And so I negotiated those things into the deal and I ended up making every penny of that money. 
and we won two. Um, and it was, it was everything you thought it could be. Uh, being part of that 04 team was, I'm actually interviewing Bron- Bronson Arroyo on my podcast. I did Johnny Damon last week. Uh, I've had Papelbon and Mirabelli on. We're still close. And you know, you played on some teams that uh, most of every team you ever played on the big leagues, you go back in the clubhouse or, uh, and meet these guys. It's like you were there yesterday. There's no breakdown of friendships and bond here. We're, we're friends for life. And we spent more time with these guys than we did with our families. So walking into a room is like walking into a room tomorrow. Some of the things you were discussing right there, the O one to me, I was on that O one Mariner team. You know, we were supposed to win the whole thing. Oh, and then all of a sudden nine 11 hits you, uh, you mentioned nine 11 and we go to New York and they beat us. And that was like impossible that year. Cause yeah, we, were yeah, yeah. Magic, we were on a magic carpet ride. And, and I remember looking at my teammates when we left there going, that didn't just happen. Yeah. And it did. On to you guys in Arizona, and you mentioned you and RJ, uh, Randy. Was, I was teammates with Randy when I was young, coming up. And I remember <laughs> watch. I remember watching you guys going. Now that's a one-two punch right there. And you mentioned the. I'm going to pitch game one, game four, game seven. Shield to this day. When we get to the playoffs and, and people are asking me about how they should set up, I said, well, he should be able to go on three days rest. And I just assume, oh, he can't do that. And I just go. He's a horse. Right. He has to be able to do that right. the whole season. What you and Randy did in that, oh, I, I remember so much about 01 and so much of it is bittersweet. Because yeah. I got it. We got out. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you, honestly, from my perspective, you guys getting knocked out was the best thing that could have ever happened. You guys, that offense was terrifying. Now, I don't know that we were as concerned about your pitching, but but I, if I remember right, 116 win or something obscene. Right. Yeah, it was obnoxious. But but we were that was the one team in the American League that we were. I don't think we were afraid of them, um, but we were more way more concerned about the Mariners than the other team. And when you guys got knocked out, it was stunning, stunning to me. And when we got knocked out, then you start thinking like, well. It's New York. It just must be their year with 9-11 that yeah. you guys pull it off. And it was well, they were going awesome. for four in a row, too. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbe- I, I remember the George Bush first pitch oh. was chills down your spine. Uh, yeah. Everything about that. Um, yep. Touch on real quick. Brenly that year took over in Arizona. Yeah. Is there a napkin? Um, is there a napkin story? There, uh, you know what? Um I, and I say this, and there's no disrespect meant in any of this. Um, but in a nutshell, Bob Melvin, like, co-managed that team. Bob, he was my skipper in 03. He, he was he co-managed that team. Um, he was the guy. He was the communicator. That's why I knew he'd be a great big league manager because of what he did. You know, Bob was a top-line guy uh, who there wasn't a lot to do on that team because we were a veteran team. We knew how to play the game. There were enough guys in that clubhouse from Todd Stottlemyre to Matt Williams. Nobody was going to go outside their lane. Everybody was going to do their work and do their job. And so you you just needed kind of a, a daycare kind of consultant. And, and, and I think Bob was that uh, um, in, in a great way. I think he just he had a he had a way about himself because that was at about the time when the game was changing and it stopped being. And X's and O's, the, the, the manager stopped having an impact on winning games because, you know, he didn't, you, you stop 
sabermetrics was starting to kind of creep into the universe. And so uh, you did less during the game because your job as a manager was I need my 25 guys to not kick each other's ass and to want to play in the same uniform and go out and play hard every night. That's my job as a manager. And, and this was, a, this was early on. And Bo Mel was the guy, and you can appreciate this as a position player. I can remember a hundred nights where Bo Mel would come in and go, Hey, and he would walk around the clubhouse and it's the national league, right? Before the DH. So you've got, you've got uh, your eight position players and then you've got what uh, 25 or six bench guys in the National League bench guys were big, huge. So he would go to Craig right. Council. Hey, you're playing second tomorrow to Colburn. He'd say, hey, listen, their middle of their pen is this, this and this. You could probably you're not starting tomorrow, but you could see in a bat in the seventh or eighth every single night. And that level of communication as players, you know how much we love that. Mm -hmm. Don't listen. I'll take anything just like an umpire. I just want consistency. Don't, don't, I don't want to show up. And I, I didn't do this as a pitcher, but I know as position players, position players hated showing up on a Monday, all geared up to play and they're not in the lineup and no yeah. one said anything to them. Right. Because you spent your whole day a certain way. You're playing your off days are different than your game days. Mm -hmm. And for me as a pitcher, my start day was very different than every other day. And, and so that Bob Mel Bob Brindley was, and just, a, I just saw him a couple of weeks ago, in Arizona, we had a reunion in Arizona the same weekend we had one in Philadelphia um, for the uh, the 25 year anniversary of the team. And and I, I've always I'll always cherish nice great guy, a baseball lifer, um, has a perspective few people have. Was a good player too, by the way. Um, but we had a phenomenal coaching staff too, Goody. I'll never and I want to tell you a quick. I I don't have any napkin stories, right? Because I talk way too freaking much for napkin stories. But in an open ended podcast, I'm your best friend. Anyway. <laughs> we had a we had a great coaching staff, right? Chris Fire was the infield coach. Um, um, we had so so my pitching coach, okay, Bob Welch, who became one of my favorite human beings of all time. Outstanding. The, the thing about Welchy was when we cleared benches, someone was Rubio Durazo, I think, was responsible for finding Welchy and getting him off the field because Welchy would kill somebody. And it, it did, you didn't have to provoke him. He would just go out and want to would start beating on somebody. And so, uh, but I was in love with Bob Welch. I, he was, he didn't teach me a ton about pitching, but he taught me a ton about being a pitcher. And uh, I never had a problem being a quote unquote number two behind Rajay and, and Pedro, because that was like being second in a painting contest to Picasso. Right. right. I mean, I don't, I, on the day I pitch, I'm the one boys. And, and if you don't believe it, you know, here it comes. And so, uh, but a great coaching staff. And it was, a, you know, it, you had Bob Brenly, And it was very different, right? I love, I played for Buck Showalter for only a couple months. I loved Buck. I absolutely loved Buck Showalter. He had a coaching staff of guys that weren't necessarily big league players. A lot of them had never played the big leagues because that's what he surrounded himself with. Bob Brenly was the opposite. All of his coaches had big league for the most part, had big league, Dwayne Murphy, um, uh, had big league experience because he had a big league clubhouse. You had Mark Grace, Todd Stottlemyre, Matt Williams, Luis Gonzalez, Council. You had a ton of veteran players in that clubhouse who didn't need a babysitter. They needed to, to a guy to to uh, alleviate. The, and you had Arizona media, so there wasn't like you had to worry about the media um, like you did in Boston and Philadelphia. Philadelphia, excuse me, but but that was what a year that was. And 
Um, so many memories of that year that I'll take to my grave and be cherished that I ever had a chance to be a part of. The 04 World Series, still to this day, I've had a lot of guys on the podcast uh, on both sides of the ledger in 04. Yeah. But I remember watching it still to this day. It's one of the greatest the greatest things I've ever seen in sports. One of the my my three wonders of sports. This is one of them. Being down a 3-0 to that Yankee team in that rivalry, come back, win four, and then sweep the World Series. That doesn't happen. It when you're no. down 3-0, especially they're going four straight. No, they weren't going four straight at that time. But it was still that core of guys. Well, remember I that remember, team. You know, that was a rod. It's unbelievable Matsui. that you guys did that. Yep. yep. Take me yep. through well, 04 and tell me okay. how unreal that was. So, right. So, so if you remember, uh, well, it's hard to remember. It was a long time ago. But we were, we were, uh, we were behind the Yankees uh, most of the uh, uh, midway through the season, um, and uh, we had a game with the Yankees, uh, and. Uh, Bronson drilled uh, a rod with a with a uh, a breaking ball and a rod. I, I I don't know how position players do this, but I, I've heard it enough to believe it's true. There are times when a player feels like he needs to 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 either ingratiate himself with his teammates or he needs to get his team fired up. Uh, and a rod starts talking shit going down the first baseline. And and the great one of the five greatest quotes in the history of baseball. Was and I don't know if you're if you're bleeping language on this, uh, you're gonna want to bleep this. But he's like, he, you can see you can see him on his mouth. He's going, "Fuck you to Bronson, fuck you." And Tech jumps out and says, "Shut the fuck up." And he's like, "Fuck you." And he goes, he goes, "Don't shit at me." He goes, "We don't throw at 260 hitters, bitch." And because A Rod was hitting like 270 at the time, and that's when in an A Rod and 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 then uh, uh, Tech picks. And by the way, if you're watching that video. Please understand how strong Alex Rodriguez is. Jason Veritek might be the strongest player I ever played with next to Dave Hollins. He tried to pick A-Rod off the ground and couldn't do it. Like, A-Rod, that was a, and that was a legit fight. Like, there was, Tanyan Sturtz got his face beat by uh, Kapler and Ortiz. And, uh, you know, we were, I, I was like, like, I'm very proud of the fact that in almost every single bench clearing brawl in my career, I'm the first guy on the camera outside of the two that are fighting on the field. Cause I could read that shit. Like I was at the step of the dugout and I I'm waiting and waiting. And before tech face, his gloves hit his face, I'm on the field running and I'm rabbit punching a rod as I get him. And then Sheffield grabs me and, and we go at, but, but that was the last year that we really didn't like each other. Um, and, and the hatred Yankee Red Sox hatred was far more in the stands than it was on the field, but they didn't like Pedro. I didn't like Posada. Uh, you know, I, nobody liked A-Rod at the time. And I say that generally, it's very different now, but, but we didn't like each other and it showed. And there was, if you think about those, I mean, we had the, the, the misfortune of being ESPN Sunday night baseball every freaking week. It was Yankees Red Sox, which meant a six hour game with tape the with, with commercials because both lineups top to bottom were full of 300, 350 on base percentage guys and Manny and all these other guys. And we played five and we went five and five in the 10 games after that. And then we met, we dealt Nomar, which was a, a season long issue for us. The Nomar situation never went away. Um, and we dealt Nomar and we got Billy, uh, uh, we got uh, um, Dave Roberts, Doug Mankiewicz, and the guy, the key to the whole thing was Orlando Cabrera, um, who came in and a horribly underrated player, horribly underrated teammate too, by the way. Um, and we eventually took off. If you remember that game, Billy Miller took Mo Rivera deep 
in extra innings to win it. We walked them off. Um, and uh, about a week later, we took off. And we got to the playoffs. We're down 3-0. And I remember the moment it turned. I'll never forget it. I was in the clubhouse. And in Boston, we had uh, a feed to the media room on the TV. And um, it was Tito. Tito was sitting in front of the media. And the Boston media was, you know, I always say in Philadelphia and Boston, there's a different dynamic. You have to play the pregame media, the game, and then the postgame media. There's three games a day because the pregame media can impact the game and the game can impact the postgame media. And it's a vicious cycle if you let it live. And there are a lot of guys in that that were just complete dicks in that room. Um, but somebody asked Tito about what? What are you, you going to do? And, and he looked at him like, what do you mean, what are we going to do? We're going to show up tomorrow and we're going to play as hard as we can play and try to win a game. And everything went away. When I, I felt like the whole the water level in the room went from full to empty from a pressure perspective because that's what we were going to do. We didn't have to win four games. And, and I remember we, we had a team meeting and I said, I said, listen, guys, we don't have to win four games. We don't have to win three or two. We don't have to win tomorrow's game. We have to win the top of the first inning. We have to win the bot. We have to win every at bat. Even if you make it out, make it a win at bat. Make it a Johnny Damon 10 pitch at bat. Every hitter, every pitch, we have to make matter. And for, for eight consecutive games, one of the most talented rosters I was ever on was that focused. And you know as well as I do, when that much talent is focused on a singular point in space, you can't get beat. And, and the horribly underrated aspect of that entire run was the fact that we swept the Cardinals team that was insanely talented. Pools and Roland and ben, uh, uh, Renteria and Walker. I mean, it was insanely talented. And we walked in there and we took them 4-0 and it was it was a clean sweep. And um, we, we, we get down. Uh, David hits a walk-off in game four. David hits another walk-off in game five. Then we get to game six and we win game six in Yankee Stadium. And then we get to game seven and they're starting Kevin Brown. And uh, uh, Damon gets thrown out the plate in the first inning. And, you know, Red Sox Nation, 86 years, they're like, oh, no, here we go again. Sure enough, David comes up to the plate and hits a home run in the first inning. We're up one nothing. Then two innings later, Johnny hits a grand slam. And we're winning eight. Or, I'll never forget it either because it was like 10 to four or 10 to two. And we're all, our buttholes are all still this tight thinking, oh, my God, how are they going to score 11 runs? Because they're going to score seven seven or eight runs. They have to. This is just the way it happens. And uh, and Tito brought in Pedro, who this was when Who's Your Daddy was a big thing in New York, and, like, breathed life into the stadium. All of a sudden, Yankee Stadium, they're down seven runs, and they're chanting, Who's Your Daddy? And uh, we end up closing it out. And that was our World Series. That really was. No disrespect to the Cardinals. But coming back and beating the Yankees after all that had happened, uh, that was our World Series. And and I can tell you, honestly, I don't know how, how involved you were, but I was always involved in the pre-series scouting meetings. Um, uh, I would sit in and listen to the advanced scouts because I always wanted to hear, you know, in the National League, there are always two or three roster spots that could be fluctuated with a pinch hitter or an extra catcher. And I wanted minor league reports on guys I might see. And I remember the St. Louis one. And again, no disrespect to the Cardinals. At the end of the St. Louis scouting meeting for the World Series, it wasn't whether we could win the World Series or not. We didn't see an avenue for the Cardinals to beat us one game because they had they didn't have swing and miss pitching. And if in October, if you can't make hitters swing and miss, you get crushed. 
And that lineup, remember that lineup, we had a batting champion hitting ninth. Bill Miller was hitting ninth on that lineup. And and uh, uh, top to bottom, it was, we would get your, you could shut us out for six innings and still have 135 pitches. That was the kind of lineup it was. But it, was, it wasn't whether the Cardinals could win. And the same thing happened in 07 with the Rockies. After the meeting, we're like, I don't know that they, it's not that we can't win the World Series. I don't think they can beat us a game because they didn't have the pitching to do it. And and like I said, we rolled over them 4-0. Quick story, we won eight in a row after after um, being down 3-0. And the triggering event was happened in the wives' lounge. My wife, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I know the smirk, I know the smirk. So in 01, my wife, uh, when we went to the World Series, she had bandanas made for all the wives, purple bandanas that they wore kind of as their little team bonding thing. And in 04, she did the same thing. And uh, Michelle Damon, who was not Michelle Damon at the time, she was Johnny's girlfriend, um, uh, and my wife didn't get along. And uh, Michelle Damon walks in after game three, and she, my wife's sitting on the chair, and she throws her bandana down on Shonda's lap. And she's like, a lot of good these fucking bandanas did us. And Shonda stands up and goes, well, maybe if you wore yours, your husband wouldn't be fucking over 20. And it was on. Like, physical altercation in the wives' lounge. And my wife tells me this after the game, and I'm like, oh, my God. You're oh, killing this, me. <laughs> yeah, this is not good. We're down 3-0, and now i got to go in and one of my teammates. And, you know, and Johnny and I see each other the next day in the clubhouse, and we walk in, and it was like a Charlie Brown moment. We saw each other, and we both just started laughing. We're like, oh, okay, whatever. Uh, we got to go out and play a game. And we won eight straight after that, so she takes credit for the, the, the 04 World Series to this day. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. That is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, and you go through the 04 and 07. I, I just remember being a player that wasn't in that rivalry, you know. I mean, all of us in the big leagues at that time, at that time <clears throat> in history, like you said, it seemed like every Sunday night baseball was yeah. red, Red Sox, Yankees. And, I'm and when telling you're not you, in it, when you're not in it as a player, it gets boring. It's like right. enough already. Turn the page, guys. But it, it was heated. That rivalry now, and you win another World Series in 07, but it was all that back then. Now we're seeing currently it's Baltimore, Tampa Bay. They're atop yeah. the division. Yeah. The, the, the Red Sox and the Yankees, it's not Sunday night baseball every week. Now, I'm not saying – you know, you can't win every single year, but but that time in history, uh, it was pretty heated. And, and do you I, think it my, was better that you kind of hated each other? Yeah, oh, yeah. No, no, no. It was yeah. way more entertaining. Way more entertaining because there was so much more on the line. Because we were, for the most part, the two best teams in baseball. And so uh, one of us was going to win the division and one of us was going to be the wild card. And, um, you know, we got to see each other in October uh and the stakes were through the roof and and it again same thing it was all in the stands like that energy yeah. the fans brought made it what it was and red sox fans have always hated the yankees and yankee fans have always they, they've not hated the red sox they've kind of pitied them up until uh this century when you know the red sox took over and, and have done what they've done but um I can't imagine my baseball career without that experience. That was something, you know, I don't know, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's Auburn, Alabama football. It's, it's, you know, it, oh. it, it, it is, it is one of the, it's the Cowboys Steelers. It's one of the greatest rivalries in sports and it's lost a lot of its luster 
um, because neither one of the teams is 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 very good right now. But and I got to tell you, I I talk with your brother quite often. I text him um, uh, because I think that they're going to make a huge mistake in making him pay for this horrible season. Um, and I think it's going to be the worst thing they could possibly do in that situation. I think your brother's one of the greatest people I've ever known in my life. I, I, I think he is the personification of what you want in a major league manager these days. And I, I would argue that there's probably a, not a guy in that clubhouse that wouldn't take a bullet for him. And, and you can't get that buy-in with the modern day athlete. Like he's gotten, They've underperformed. The players have sucked. They've been hurt, and they just haven't done the things they're supposed to do. None of it falls on him. Uh, but somebody pays the price, and you can't fire the team. Yeah, that's true. And, and it'll be interesting to see. But I, I laugh, and I talk to – you know, I, I don't be I, – I try to stay out of a little bit. Yeah. Oh, here, here's Big Brother coming in. It's not about that. It's about being a, a, a rational, good baseball mind that looks at things yeah. honestly. And, and, you know, I've said – and like I said, I don't want to beat it. A dead horse, but I've said recently in a couple interviews that you put this on Aaron Boone, but you don't know the game, and right, me and, right, right. Really, me and you really can't have a conversation. Well, and, and you know what? You're going to put this day, on Aaron Boone. Aaron Boone is a better man than he is a baseball talent, and he's a prodigious baseball talent. I had the honor and privilege of working with him at ESPN, and I cherish those times. Uh, yeah. I, I loved him. I, I still love him. I think he's one of the God's good people, and and I hope he's on the other side of this because Aaron Boone will manage a world champion at some point after 07 uh, you retire Un- unbelievable career i mentioned it you had the you know led the league in in wins a couple years nine times you went 200 plus innings that's big for me my horse uh three four six 216 wins six all-star games world series mvp in, in 2001 um i got a question to you and this is the kurt Schilling. this is brett boone the player against kurt Schilling, the pitcher when did you see, I saw, I remember I was with the Reds in the, in the, throughout five years in the nineties, I faced Kurt Schilling peak, Kurt Schilling, Philadelphia Phillies over the top power pitcher, hard slider. When you came up with the split, when did you start throwing the split? And it was a part of your repertoire. Cause so, I felt you, uh, Roger Clemens started doing it. And it was a difference maker to me. Yeah. It went from really good, tough pitcher, but I could see his fastball. I can yeah. see his slider. When you came up with that split, it was a different animal for me, Brett yeah. Boone, the hitter. Well, so it's a, actually a funny story, and it goes back to my Red Sox days. When I was in uh, Boston as a minor leaguer in the 80s, we didn't have pitching coaches in the minor leagues. We had roving instructors who would come in every now and then. So a lot of my bullpens were thrown unsupervised. Um, and so you either – adapted and learned and you had a baseball IQ or you just stagnated and got, they got rid of you. I was, uh, I, I made the double A team out of spring training from low A ball as kind of the last pitcher on the staff. And it was kind of, so I was young and uh, about a month or two into the season, uh, Dave Holt, our manager came and said, you're going to start in Williamsport <clears throat> your next game. And I was like, okay. So I went, Todd Pratt was my catcher. And I went to Pratty and I said, hey, listen, I, I don't have the mix to be a starter. I need another pitch. So I said, I'm just going to try a fork ball. And it was back when Brian Harvey was had this, you know, yes. I watched Brian Harvey. And he had a Harvey filthy closer, closer. Yep. And so I uh, I went to the bullpen. I threw a bullpen and I threw a fork ball. And it was filthy. And it's a very different pitch than the split. But I threw it. And so then I go out and I make a start. I throw a complete game and punch out 10 shutout 
throwing this nasty forkball. And I'm like, wow, this is okay. This works, man. Well, a month and a half later, I get traded to the Orioles. Um, <clears throat> and they bring me up to the big leagues in September. And I had the forkball. And I, I messed with it for a couple years. When I went to Houston and became the closer, I moved on to a split-fingered fastball. And it, it's the easiest it's the easiest pitch in the world to teach. It's the easiest pitch in the world to throw. And it never goes in a slump. Um, a, a split-fingered fastball is 100% reliant on your arm speed. So when you have velocity, you have a split. And, and uh, the two pitches I'll never forget seeing in my lifetime as a hitter were a Kevin Brown sinker at 96, which was like a left-handed slider. And Roger Clemens in game seven, the Owen World Series threw me a 93-mile-an-hour split-fingered fastball. And I laughed. I sw- I was late. I was a day late on it. And I looked at Passat and I go, that was a split. He's like, yep, that was a split, bro. And and But I remember – and that was one of the advantages of National League hitting, too, as a pitcher. You got to see pitches and understand. Like, I, my first at-bat, uh, Booney, in the big leagues, I faced Rob Dibble. And I hit a line drive single up the middle. And then, well, then he threw it the next hitter and we, we had a bench clearing brawl, but um, I was never, I never had a problem with the fastball. My, my problem, Charlie Liebrandt made me look like a five-year-old kid. He threw me three change. Up. I, I couldn't handle the change of speeds. And it's where I learned as a hitter. Oh my God, change of speeds is like way better than throwing hard. And so the split became my second pitch. And if you think about it, I tell people this, you know, I, threw, I struck out 3,116 guys. And I would tell you probably half were on splits. I never threw a single split in my entire career trying to throw a strike. Never. No. And if you think about what that means is I had to be prepared. I had to face Booney as a hitter and I had to know what your first pitch swing percentage was, what you did in certain counts. And I want, because you don't get good hitters out with strikes. You get them out of the strike zone. So I had to make you leave the strike zone as a good hitter. Well, the only way to do that was to make you think every pitch I was throwing was a strike. I had such good fastball command. You couldn't sit there and anticipate a ball. And so and I threw hard enough that you had to be aggressive. The split, when I got it right, looked like a fastball until the last eight or 10 feet because it had rotation. And that just became I was I was I was a three pitch pitcher in the sense that I developed the slider to lefties, a backdoor slider. But I was fastball split to most guys. And. I threw, and Maddox said something early in my career I'll never forget. You got to, the key to pitching is to throw a ball when the hitter's swinging and a strike when he's taking. And, and again, simple, but when you think about the, the complications of that process, what that means, I have to know when you're swinging and know when you're taking. So that takes preparation and video and all the things. That's what, you know, I still have all my notebooks um, from when I played and I had my pregame notes. I had my game plan and during the game I would write in it when things happened. And so everything to me, and I kept that year after year after year. And by the time I retired, I had a Webster's Dictionary size notebook on hitters and umpires. And that to me was what I had to do to be good. And I wanted to be good. That is, it, I, I remember this. I, this is just a small story for me. I remember, and this hitting coach will go unnamed. Uh, I remember him in a meeting. And whoever we were facing that night might have been Hideo Nomo. He said, guys, you know, when the split starts out as a strike that you take it. <laughs> and I remember looking at him going, did you really play in the big leagues that right, long? right, right, Weren't right, right. Real? Don't you think if we knew that we would take the pitch, obviously. Yep. And that's what people don't understand in the layman's when when they talk about it, it's like 
the reason we swing at the split is because we think it's a fastball. It looks like a fastball. <laughs> it's amazing to me. Well, it's 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 also um there are you know one of the things I found in my career from coaching perspective, the greatest players tended to not be very good coaches. Because and Frank Robinson, who I to to this day I I adore, right. I adore admire, and love, he couldn't understand why you couldn't hit a ground ball to second base with a runner on second. <laughs> Just hit a ground ball to second base, and and it was like, uh, okay, Frank, I understand what you're saying, but it actually isn't that easy. But to Frank Robinson, it was, and and so those guys some of them tended to not be great coaches because they couldn't understand why you just couldn't do things. Well, hit against the shift. Well, okay. Right. Right. <laughs> and and so those things to me, no, I, I don't like a lot of the rule changes. Like the shift one's a stupid one, but I, I always said, listen, if they're shifting and the third baseman's playing shortstop, if you bunt four times, they'll stop shifting. Players wouldn't do it because bunting doesn't get you on ESPN. And and guys wanted to be highlights instead of winning games, and that that was not a good thing. Uh, this year's uh, you want you keeping close tabs this year. So I have a uh, uh, I have a, a podcast called the Kurt Schilling Baseball Show. I do it uh, Tuesdays and Fridays. Actually, today uh, my interview with Rod Carew uh, is wow. playing in full. Yeah, yeah, very cool. And um, uh, so yes, I pay attention. I it's hard to watch anymore because. The next time I see a starting pitcher tipping his cap as he walks off the mound in the middle of the sixth inning, I'm going to have acid reflux. <laughs> I, it's just, it's just, it's a different game. And, and again, you don't really blame the players because because the money's gotten so big that teams are investing so much uh, that uh, you know. But these guys are learning on the job, and you can't do that. I don't think you can ask a pitcher to learn and do things for the first time in the big leagues. I had 600 innings in the minor leagues before I came to the big leagues, not because I wasn't good enough, but because that's what you did. You know, I, I had probably 30 complete games in the minor leagues. Um, I knew what pitching in the eighth inning of a game with the time run on second base uh, and the number three hitter up. I knew what that was like. I didn't have to do it in the big leagues for the first time. And and so uh, you see a lot of guys coming up and, and you know, we the, the, the get off my lawn old guys. And we do, you know, guys don't understand fundamental baseball. They don't. I can't. Last year watching the playoffs, I got sick to my stomach because nine of every 10 pitchers were throwers. They were throwing the ball as hard as they could throw it. And you and I just, you know, I'll watch the catcher set up and see him do this and do this and do this and realize that there's no pitching going on. They're just throwing as hard as they can. And and, and that's what bullpens are made up of now. They're made up of five or six velocity guys. And you don't have your Mariona Rivera anymore. The guy who has precise command, um, uh, th that guy, obviously there's very few Marianos. But, but when you watch a guy like Jacob DeGrom or Verlander or Scherzer pitch, or Kershaw, it's different. They're commanding their fast. And so I, there's two things, command and control. Everybody in the big leagues has control, the ability to throw strikes. Command is the ability to manipulate the ball inside the strike zone. And I could do that. In my mind, like in the first inning, great example. So when I pitched in the first inning, I I never showed all three of my pitches. Uh, and, and I would throw fast. And I, there were games where I would tell myself, and I did it, I'm not going to throw a breaking ball until they have a base runner. Because I knew I threw 96. My fastball was six pitches, not one. You can't hit the fastball in at the hands the same way you do the fastball down and away. In fact, you can't provide for both. You have to pick one. And my job was knowing which one you didn't pick. And so, and now it's, wow, that you see them, they throw it, they look at the gun. They throw it, they look at the gun. Well, I, I looked at the gun every now and then because I was always, you know, everyone wants to know how fast their car's going. 
but but it was about you know and, and Johnny Padres I always said you know how hard am I throwing he's like he would grab me by the shirt and say the hitters will let you know how hard you're throwing and and it's true it, you know the Jamie Moyers of the world I, are lost yeah I didn't want I didn't like facing guys like you that want to you're going to think with me I don't want to talk to Jamie Moore I don't want to I don't want to Pedro was tough because he's reading my body language he yeah he knew when I took a pitch a certain way that I was looking for something else one of the one of the I always tried to learn from my guys that I pitched with uh Pedro Martinez was one of the highest baseball IQs of anybody Pedro reacted visually where you were in the box how you took a pitch how you fouled the ball off I couldn't do that I, I don't ever remember even seeing the hitter at the plate. I reacted to my pitches. And my pitches went off of my pitches as opposed to your reaction. And Pedro was a guy who could see you move up in the box. Hal Morris was a great one, right? Yeah. Hal would stand at the back of the batter's box, back corner. And when I'm winding up, I didn't know this for, for a while. He owned me in the minor leagues. He would creep up to the plate when you were winding up. And that fastball away where he's 15 miles from the outside corner – He's all over it when you're delivering it because he's now on the plate and little things like that. Uh, you learned again, you learned them in the minor leagues. And, 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 and so those were the things that I took and, and learned with. And, and to the, to the day I retired, I was still trying to learn. You mentioned the, the Veritech stories. He used to give me nightmares because I'd hit off catchers and most catchers aren't thinking with me, but I'd nope. have a Jason Veritech. I'll give you an example. Not you can't hit when I had a plus when I'm facing a number one, number two guy and they've got two plus pitches. You made a good reference. You can't hit them both. I can touch them both, but I can't hurt you on both. I got to get on one and trust. Trust. And it's generally going to be the fastball in your spot until you have two strikes. Right. Jason Veritek was a nightmare for me because I'd come up with the bases loaded and pick a pitcher on the mound. I'm sitting soft. Because I don't think he, to Brett Boone in in a base loaded situation, this guy controls his pitches. He's going to throw me a first pitch fastball. Well, if Jason Veritek threw me a first pitch fastball with the bases loaded and I took it, he'd almost look yeah. up at me, raise his yeah. mask, and go, "Hey, Boney, I guess we weren't looking for a fastball." Oh right. no! Here yeah, goes he the can... cat and mouse. Here goes yep. that the game inside the game. Well, there's a reason why I think he caught five or six no hitters more than anybody ever. And he caught yeah. like seven or eight one hitters. I had, uh, I lost a no hitter in the bottom of the ninth with two outs uh, uh, because I shook him off one time the entire yeah. game. And it was the pitch I shook him off of Shannon Stewart lined into right field. And if I had thrown the pitch he wanted, he would have grounded the ball back to me and I would have had a no hitter. Um, but he was the only guy I ever saw put in as much time as I did in, in the, in the, in the preparation thing. Um, and, and we lockered next to each other in Boston. And, and, uh, <clears throat> I always told, I, I always, so, so, uh, uh, early in my career, I had veteran Bob Melvin, Mickey Tettleton. Um, I had, uh, uh, Darren Dalton, but I, my young catchers, I usually only had one catcher during the season. And it wasn't because I had a guy. It was because I wanted consistency because tempo was part of my game. I want to get the ball and I want to pitch. And, and I don't want to be shaking off four or five signs. Nine, 99 times out of 100, my shake-offs, I was shaking off nothing. I was just shaking off so you or the hitter would see me shaking because I only had two and a half pitches, so I'm really not shaking the knuckleball. But but um, I so what I told my young catchers, I said, listen, if I shake you off and you feel conviction about something, tap your chest and say, I want this. 
And that and, and very few catchers did that because that put them on the seat. That put right. them in, in the accountable place. But the good ones like Todd Pratt, Doug Mirabelli, Tech did it too. Um, uh, uh, Levy did it. Mike Lieberthal. Gary Bennett did it. But guys who uh, – same thing. I had my catchers buy in, man. When I had young catchers, I bought. I said, I told Levy early in his career, I said, listen, dude, I don't care if you go 0 for 4 and punch out four times. If I see you on the bench like working on your hands or – trying to play with your swing, I'm going to have a problem. You need to be behind the plate, manage my umpire, and manage my game. Get your four hits tomorrow if it doesn't happen today. But I want you in my game. <laughs> well, Kurt Shelley, I appreciate you coming on the program. And once again, to the people out there uh, listening to the Boom Podcast, Tuesdays, Thursdays, where can, to, where can they find kick, your podcast? Go to, to outkick.com, uh, Kurt Shelley Baseball Show, Apple, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast. Uh, Rod Carew interview today. I did Johnny Damon last week. Uh, got Bronson Arroyo coming on this week. Um, and and uh, my first podcast ever, I predicted the Orioles doing the AL East this year. So I'm I'm standing on that one. And my right. future's bet. So who's the, who's the World Series champion this year? Um, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with the Orioles because I bet them. But if I was going to put money on it today, I would have to. I, I, I don't see how you beat the Braves in a seven game series. I really yeah. don't. Only team I see in either league without a weakness. Kurt Schilling, uh, awesome, man. I appreciate the grandpa story. Yes. I always love that. Go ahead. Tell your father I said hello and uh, and your brother as well. You got it. And Take care, buddy. You, for all you listening, watching the Boone podcast, I appreciate you showing up, and we'll see you next time. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company. 